Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> oh, jinx. Buy me a hocho. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Tuesday, August 21st. Wowzer. Mm. And Eid Mubarak. Thank you yeah. so much. And yes. to all of our listeners who celebrate Eid. Yes, for everyone who is um, meeting up with family, eating, um, yeah, asking for money, <laughs> as you do, as a child, that's what we used to do, where, oh, okay. yeah, so it's, but you've got to be really, we're talking like five, six-year-olds, and then you go to your auntie, and you're like, oh, eat my body, and then you stick your hand out, <laughs> and, well, and sometimes she'd pay, or sometimes she'd look at you like, get out of my face. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing the relatives and, um, yeah, just eating and chilling. So that would be nice. Awesome. I loved your, uh, I loved your tweet about it. What did it say? That you're looking forward to people commenting oh, on your marital status I'm and appearance, long. but then also feeding you and loving you. Yes. I was like, wow, every family gathering for, it's like a universal, it experience. really is. Especially if you're a woman, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like first comes the judgment, then then it's like, then okay. Then comes the food. Then comes <laughs> the food. The food is supposed to I know. mediate everything else, <laughs> I think. Yeah, which is nice. It's mm. coming from a good place. I don't think they, like, I well, I know for a fact that my family's not coming from a bad place. It's just for them, they're really earnest mm. <laughs> and they really care. Yeah. And they're really concerned. Um, so I'm like, oh, bless you. Thank you. But I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I've got this. <laughs> um, well, maybe we'll jump into some news headlines before we kick the show off. Um, so this is um, a bit of news that came in late yesterday afternoon, which I think everybody will probably be really excited about. Um, a few Australian news outlets are reporting that there is a leadership twist as Peter Dutton could potentially be ineligible to sit in Parliament due to his family's financial interests in the Commonwealth. So Section 44 of the Constitution, which felled I don't even know how many um, members of Parliament last year or earlier this year, mm-hmm. um, one of the parts of Section 44 says that you cannot, you are ineligible to sit in Parliament if you receive indirect or direct financial benefits um, or financial interests from the Commonwealth. And so mm-hmm. Peter Dutton and his wife are beneficiaries of a family trust, and the trust owns his wife's company, which runs two childcare centres in Brisbane, Mm. both of which receive government 
subsidies. Therefore, um, a couple of Commonwealth um, constitution specialists have said that it's possible that that could be one of the direct or indirect benefits under Section 44, which could mean that Dutton is ineligible to be in Parliament at all. Um, like, what a gift. Mm. This is, section 44 just keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> so this has come at a really good time because it looked like he was going to take a stab at the leadership. So um, we will keep our eye very, very closely on that. Yeah. Um, however, it is the Parliament's job to refer Section 44 issues to the High Court. And so um, I can't really imagine Malcolm Turnbull turning around and doing that now. But anyway, that's not news. That's just speculation. So we'll get back to news. Mm-hmm. Um uh, on Nauru, a 12-year-old Iranian boy who cannot be named um, has been on a hunger strike for two weeks and he is now unable to stand up and weighs only 36 kilograms. He's being held on Nauru by the Australian government after he and his family came to seek asylum. Over the weekend, the Australian border force prepared to fly the boy to Australia for urgent treatment but would not allow his stepfather to travel with him. Doctors are now urging Border Force staff to immediately fly the boy to Australia using an air ambulance as he's too unwell to travel via a commercial flight and the treatment that he needs is not available on Nauru. Mm. The Border Force, the Australian Border Force, is still refusing to allow any family members to travel with him and the boy is refusing to travel without them. Doctors warn that he could die within a matter of days if he does not receive treatment. Mm. Following last week's declaration of a state of emergency in Ecuador over the scale of migration from Venezuela, new rules have been brought in to ban any Venezuelan without a passport from entering Ecuador's territory. Over the weekend, this new rule left nearly 1,000 people stranded between Colombia and Ecuador, unable to enter Ecuador and unwilling to return to life in Venezuela. Al Jazeera reports that until the recent crackdown, both Colombia and Ecuador had allowed Venezuelans to enter their country using only paper IDs. The Peruvian government also plans to change their entry rules to require passports from next weekend. Due to paper and ink shortages, many Venezuelans do not have passports. The United Nations has expressed their concerns about Ecuador's decision. In Kerala, in southern India, people continue to be affected by what is being called the worst flooding to have hit the region in a century. Heavy monsoon rains have been hitting the state since the end of May, with severe rains since early August causing the widespread flooding. More than 800,000 people have been displaced, though Kerala's finance minister has told Al Jazeera that it could be up to 1.5 million. Up to 370 people have died, and the damage to infrastructure is currently estimated at $3 billion. Mm -hmm. Two of the state's 14 regions remain on red alert. Despite complaints from many Kurdish and Sunni Iraqis, Iraq's parliament has ratified the results of a recent election, establishing a constitutional deadline for a coalition to be formed. The election was held in May, but a fire destroyed a number of ballots in June after a recount had already been ordered. The recount was held in early August, and it confirmed that the Shia leader, Muqtada al-Sadir, had retained his lead and would be central to forming a coalition government. He now has less than 90 days to do so. Mm. And finally, women in Kathmandu are protesting against proposed changes to the citizenship laws in Nepal, which they say discriminate against women. The bill says that Nepalese citizenship will no longer be able to be passed down from mother to child and will only be inheritable from the father. If an applicant wants to take on their mother's Nepalese citizenship, then they will be required to state that they don't know who their father is. Nepalese women have stated that this bill treats them like second-class citizens. And we'll be playing um, some more on that later in the show. So those are your news headlines for today, 21st of August.
Mm. Shall we go to a song? Yes, thanks so much for that. What have you got, honey? I want to play a track by an artist called Teaser, and it's featuring Kobe Say, and the song's called Devotion. Devotion, and it's by an artist whose name is Tirza. Really good album that's just come out recently. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah. I need to go through your playlist. I always yeah. say this, but yeah, you always come through with a good song. <laughs> listen, to t- listen to too much community radio. <laughs> um, so we have the absolute pleasure of being joined in the studio by two very lovely people. They're from Empowered Together. Um, so we have Rena Uyang and Katie Ling. Rena is the CEO of Empowered Together, and Katie, who is a good friend of mine, is the Chief Schools Officer. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. We're excited to be here. So, first off, can we just hear, you know, a bit about what is Empowered Together? What do you do? Sure. Um, so Empowered Together is a youth-run organisation. We're focused on the primary prevention of sexual violence um, and our main operation is working with secondary school students. So we run a workshop on practical consent. So we find that a lot of young people tend to know the theoretical component of consent so that they need to ask for consent and, you know, no means no and yes means yes. But they don't really know how to ask for consent and what it looks like in practice and how to have that conversation um, because they never see it in movies or porn or anything. Um, So we teach them how to have those actual conversations and what consent looks like and doesn't look like. Um, And we also have a community engagement aspect so we work within the community to try and um, facilitate conversation and encourage discussion about these topics. Um, so Empowered Together was founded by myself um, and a few other people kind of when we noticed just how prevalent the issue was um, and we were all law students and learning about the laws of consent for the first time as third-year law students, which was pretty scary. Um, and as we were doing that, I think we learned a lot about things that might have happened to us in the past and sort of putting the pieces together. So it does come from a very personal place for um, both the founders and also a lot of our volunteers. Um, so I might throw to Katie and mm. share her thoughts. On yeah, no, to get well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much for me, I think I just was hearing so many stories of friends and other people and it just makes me really angry. Every time I hear them, I really wanted to do something. So I think... My position is that education is one of the best ways to do that. So having open discussions and talking to people before this becomes, you know, a part of their lives and before they, you know, perpetrate something. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. I mean, what you've described in terms of, you know, becoming more educated about these issues and then looking back at your own past mm. and seeing things differently. Yeah. And thinking yeah. about the sex ed that we had at school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, yeah just wasn't enough, just didn't touch on so many things. And I think the sad thing as well is that when we run workshops with young people, even though we are trying to do primary prevention to stop it before it happens, we do recognise that the chances are there's probably someone in there who's already experienced something um, and often hearing us talk about it or teach them kind of what their rights are will kind of, you know, remind them of, hang on a minute, that thing that happened is that, was that, you know, 
probably not okay. Um, and that's always a challenge for us to sort of mm. work through those disclosures um, and then realise that it is starting incredibly young. Um, and so we need to start education earlier and earlier, which is really important. Yeah, and sorry, I should have mentioned, I apologise to um, any of you listening, um, that a content warning for this conversation, we are talking about um, consent and sexual assault. Um, so that sounds like your role is quite a supportive role as well. You're not just going there to sort of educate and talk about these issues, but because of the personal nature and the fact that people might have experienced it before, there is that support element there. Yeah, well, um, I think we do very much recognise our limitations, so we're yeah. not counsellors, we're not yeah. qualified to support. Mm-hmm. And so it's always really important for us that when we hear disclosures, all our facilitators are trained on first response but then they do know that they need to for the best interests of the young person hand over to someone who is qualified yeah. and able to provide them with the proper support so we're not we're not support we're trained in first response yeah. but we we do recognize our limitations yeah that that's area. that's really good mm. um and so what are your main aims through this sort of education process um so it is definitely we'd like to see a change in the attitudes um, and kind of the stereotypes and victim-blaming mantra that happens currently. Um, I think that focusing on the younger generation now is the best place to, to really feel that change. Um, and obviously our ultimate aim is to see a reduction in these you know, staggering numbers that we see of sexual violence. Um, so, I mean, the, the commonly thrown around terms are, you know, one in five women and one in 20 men will experience sexual violence in their lifetime um, and that's probably kind of the lower end because it is such an underreported crime we don't really know what the true statistics are and also we know that rates of violence are very high in the LGBTIQA plus um, community as well so obviously that's our kind of wider aim is to see a reduction in some of those numbers yeah yeah and 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 starting at the level of you know high school education or primary school education where p- these ideas are circulating yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm, before people become cemented in their ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And do you find, so you mentioned that people, students have a good understanding of consent in the theoretical sense, but not so much in the practical sense. In comparison to, say, what things were like when you were younger, do you think that there's been, like, people are, students are more educated or more aware? Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, like, kids these days are just so switched on and they're so like everything's so you know shareable instantly Mm -hmm. and they're really switched on to a lot of social justice issues just because it's easier to hear about them than it was when we were young Mm -hmm. so I think in that sense they're definitely more up to speed but I feel like the education system like and the curriculum is really lagging behind like yeah they're just not taught about you know pleasure or consent or like you know anything you know, remotely in the margins, they're just not talked about, you know, it's sort of an anatomy lesson and, and drugs are bad and off you go kind of thing. And we're really <laughs> wanting to, yeah, have a real conversation and kind of talk about, you know, what, like, consent actually looks like. Yeah, like Rena mentioned. So we try and have, yeah. yeah, honest discussions with them and just, you know, be frank and straight up and answer their questions without yeah. any kind of nonsense, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this education needs to be brought in from outside, like, you know, people like you that are doing this work mm-hmm. demonstrates that it's not happening in the education system currently. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's happening slowly. So um, there was a statewide curriculum, Respect for Relationships, that's been rolled slowly rolled out and it's meant to be from prep to year 12 so we are seeing some schools start to recognize the importance of this Um, but at the same time it is kind of necessary to have 
external people come in because hearing from your teachers yeah. can sometimes sort of <laughs> automatically, <laughs> I mean, teachers do a great job. Yep. But yep. aside from the fact that they often think it's an awkward conversation for them to have, um, it can automatically switch students off or make them think, oh, like, it's just my teacher, like, trying yep. to, like, teach mm. me this thing. Whereas when you come in and we're, we're peer-led, so we, all our facilitators are, we think we're young. We're pretty old. <laughs> the students still. We are. Facilitators <laughs> are younger, though. Yeah. Facilitators yeah. <laughs> are younger. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that automatically creates um, kind of a peer-to-peer communicative model. So it does encourage them just to ask their most awkward question. Like, yes. You yeah. know, no barriers, whatever you want to know. Um, and what Katie said before is true. There is so much more information out there for young people, but it actually creates more questions mm. as yeah. opposed to less because they're hearing things like, you know, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement and Brock Turner, um, and often they'll just catch the headlines and they don't really know how that relates to them and what they can do to mm. not to not sort of to make a change as opposed to just hearing it as something that's yes. happening in the yeah. world. Yeah. I want to add as well, I think, like, I've found, because I'm mostly involved in calling schools and contacting schools, um, a lot of the teachers are quite resistant. They're like, oh, no, we'd sort of, you know, like to teach that ourselves. But then when we actually talk to the students, they're so, yeah, they're just so engaged with us and they find it, you know, like it's less awkward. If your teacher is awkward and it's somebody that teaches you maths, you know, four days a week, you're yeah. not going to want to talk about this with them. But, you know, yeah. we're coming in sort of fresh and they're like, who's this person? You know, like they're closer to my age. They just feel comfortable. Yeah, so. who are these cool young people? <laughs> yeah. I think consent people? is really cool. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> that would have such a positive impact. Yeah. yeah. But we do think it's important to work with schools because we do realise we're only there for, yeah. you know, this short chunk of time mm. and we like to leave schools with resources afterwards um, and to have the discussion with them beforehand to say you know what are the what have, what have you taught the students before what are the areas that you think probably haven't been taught that well or need emphasis um and it is does need to be a you know kind of working with the schools it's not all on us yeah. and it's not all on the schools it's sort of a, a partnership approach is kind of the way we'd like to do yeah, it mm. that's awesome um i want to change track a little bit i want to ask you about social media and what role you think it plays mm. in these issues huge question yeah um <laughs> I think for me, it's really, there's really two sides to it because I think on the one hand, you know, you have people sharing images without consent, which is horrible and like people potentially getting quite triggered by things that they see um, online and just, you know, shared around and that's terrible. But on the other hand, you know, survivors are finding communities that they never realised were there and it's so much easier to find support from people you didn't know were out there. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, like the Me Too movement, exactly, saying, yeah, you're not alone, like, this isn't your fault, um, which is really, really important. I think survivors are taking back their trauma and kind of, you know, owning it and feeling okay and feeling supported. So it's sort of, yeah, definitely two-sided in that. But hopefully, like, you know, we're on Facebook and we're trying to sort of, you know, start that discussion and, you know, start those dialogues so that, you know, it can be more of an overall positive thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. We're on Instagram as well, because apparently Facebook's <laughs> for old people now. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. well, I'm really bad. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, the idea that the internet is sort of this double-edged sword. It doesn't mm. bring anything new out of humanity, but we need to find ways of using it that, you know, give people power as opposed to, you know, being stomped on by all of these yeah, like, problematic ideas and mm. whatever. Um, and so... I'm just thinking what are the best questions to ask before we wrap up. Um, what do you think are the, sorry, what are the laws currently in Victoria? Um, so Victoria has recently changed to a communicative model of consent. So instead of kind of 
the traditional no means no. It is swapping to a more yes means yes model. So if you haven't had the conversation about consent, it's going to be presumed that you didn't get consent. So the onus is not kind of on the, the survivor to have to say no. It's more on both parties or all parties to engage in that conversation and talk about is there consent here. Um, so that's a really positive change we've seen in Victoria and is happening kind of slowly across the different states. Um, we've also, I think, had some recent, there's been a lot of recent discussion about a bill that's been passed through both houses of parliament now that um creates a civil penalty for kind of the revenge porn that we're seeing. So it's civil penalties for people who post intimate images of people. Um, and then the e-safety commissioner will say, hey, you need to take that down. And if they don't take it down, they're liable for fines up to $100,000 for individuals. So that's really great that we're seeing that. But Katie and I had this discussion last night, actually, mm-hmm. and we were talking about, you know, the laws are there. They've kind of always been there. And yes, they need updating as kind of technology and all that kind of stuff comes in. But we do really need to not just say, oh, the laws are there. That's fine. Mm, because like it's really the system that's failing people. You know, it's like exactly. police officers who don't believe, you know, people when they come and say that they've, you know, been assaulted and like unsupportive, like, you know, legal yeah. yeah, the court system is definitely still challenging for survivors to access. So we, um, sexual assault and violence is one of the lowest reported, has one of the lowest reporting rates. And even when it's reported, it has one of the lowest prosecution rates. So I think only around 30% of allegations actually lead to um, a person being found guilty for the crime. Um, so we do need to look at why that is the case. It's not because the laws aren't there. They are, but it is about how we can make the system more accessible for survivors. And because, yeah. um, you know, you're putting yourself through a lot. You've got to be cross-examined. Um, we have laws now that say you can't be asked, you know, what were you wearing? What were you drinking? But those questions do sometimes. Yeah, it can be really re Still come across. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then obviously changing community attitudes. So that yes. The, the crime rates just aren't so high mm. is obviously where we're focused. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that. Um, that really demonstrates that it's a a holistic response. It's not just having the laws. We need to actually have a community response to this. So the laws actually, you know, Mm. like, um, they actually go through. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, So we'll have to wrap up there. There's so much to talk about. (laughs) Definitely. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you Um, for having us. But if people want to get in contact, either schools or people want to learn more about the issue, how can they do that? Um, So... Via our website is probably the best way. So you can find us at www.empoweredtogether.com.au or just Google us. Um, we should mention as well that we received some funding for low SES schools um, and rural schools, which is very exciting for us. So we have a workshop coming up, I think, three and a half hours away, which will be a big day for our facilitators. But it's great to be wow, giving... <laughs> yeah, yeah awesome. great to be giving rural schools access. So any low SES or rural schools... Um, I'll be, we'll be able to access our workshop for free or low cost, which is great. Um, and then uh, um, you can also email us at general at empoweredtogether.com.au or we're on Facebook and, as I said, Instagram for young people <laughs> out there. Um, so, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. Thanks I'll just give um, some numbers. If any of that information was distressing for you, uh, you can call the Domestic Violence Hotline on one 800 200526. You can also call 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. And there is also 
where is it? Sorry. The Kids Helpline phone counselling service on one eight hundred double five one eight double zero. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're joined on the line now by Hung Do, who is the chairperson of Open Table. Good morning, Hung. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me. No worries. So you're the chairperson of Open Table. Can we start with a bit of a rundown of what that is and how it all works? Sure. Open Table, uh, what we do is we share free meals to those in need um, in neighbourhoods across Melbourne. So what we do is we use surplus food that would otherwise go be thrown away and turn into meals that we can share with the community. So the idea is that we reduce food waste but also address food insecurity and also create a place that's open and welcome for all. Beautiful. Um, And where do you get that food from? Is it donated from businesses or um, are you guys, like, are you dumpster diving on the reg or...? Not, not quite. So we do have quite a few partners, um, Second Bite, Fair Share, Food Bank, and also quite a number of local businesses that are located close to our neighbourhood uh, kitchens and open table venues. So it's a mixture of food that's been donated by local businesses and also partners um, who rescue food from larger organisations. Mm, lovely. So it's sort of feeding all back into that community spirit and creating those links there within local businesses. That's really nice. Um, and so, like generally, I think if if anybody's you know read the newspaper or turned on the television yeah. or anything, it's it's quite clear that there are a lot of people struggling in many ways right now. Um, so I'm interested in why you chose the areas, like the suburbs that you did, to provide your services in. Uh, so. There are multiple reasons. Um, we have kitchens and um, events located in 
Glenroy, Coburg, Richmond, Fitzroy, Brunswick and Carlton. And we've chosen those locations because we did identify them as areas of high need um, with a large number of people experiencing food insecurity. I think on average, one in six people go hungry um, at least once a month. And we identified locations where there is need. But in addition, we identified locations where we had partners and local support, um, whether that's through the local government, um, venues from partner organisations, so neighbourhood houses, um, being close to food suppliers. So there's, there's a mixture of consideration. Um, but in all the areas that we've chosen, there has been some need. Um, and the need varies from location to location. So, for example, in the inner north, um, we've got some new migrants, um, younger people who might be transitioning into from school into the next stage in life. Um, and then in the in the further out in Glenroy and Faulkner, also new migrants. But there's also an older demographic in their retirement age who are experiencing food insecurity due to high cost of living. Um, so what's consistent is the the need for, I guess, the issues around food insecurity, but the reasons for that do vary from location to location. Mm. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And so how have those various communities been responding so far? Have you seen um, positive changes or good response? Um, so I guess a, a good story was a couple months back, the board were meeting at a local cafe in Fitzroy and the, the waitress there overheard what we were talking about. We were talking about open table and strategy that we were looking to implement over the next 12 months. And she said, I remember going to your kitchen, um, eating there while I was living in Collingwood. Um, and then she became a volunteer. Mm. And and now she's working in one of the local restaurants. So I think seeing firsthand how that can impact mm. on someone. Yeah. Um, and then another kitchen we have... Um, Vlad, he lives in Glenroy, but he travels to a number of our kitchens, so it could take up to an hour for him to travel mm. to um, the Fitzroy and the Richmond kitchen, um, open table lunches. But he's, he, he really enjoys that social interaction and the food preparation, and it's not so much about the meal, but more about being able to connect to people from all walks of life. Mm. And so how can people get involved? Because I know you can obviously um, show up and be involved in eating the food or in preparing the food or donating. So what are some ways that people could get involved and, and how would they go about getting in touch with you? Uh, so the first step would be to visit our website. So you can visit org. And there's a number of ways that you can uh, contribute to what we're doing. So first thing is to learn about 
the movement, um, just understand food waste, um, understand, understand food insecurity. I think having that empathy is always the first step. Um, you can sign up to become a volunteer um, and there's lots of different volunteers that we need um, from helping out in the kitchen to drivers to people providing their specialised skills such as marketing or um, or you could also um, donate, so looking for support to continue the program. And lastly, at the moment, we're, we're looking for votes to support our program. Um, it's part of a, a, a broader voting system that's going on for promoting a number of charitable organisations. So, and that's an easy thing to do, and then forward that on to your friends. Is this um, the, the Pick My Project thing? That's correct. Oh, gosh, yeah. it's everywhere yeah. at the moment. Love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so in many ways, it's been really good because we've been able to promote what we do. Um, mm. So if we're on people's radar and people are happy to, to vote for one or all three of our projects, that would be more than helpful. Fantastic. Well, I'll pop the website up on our Facebook page for listeners who do want to get involved but maybe didn't have a pen on hand. Um, and hopefully you'll have a massive influx of people willing to help, but um, more hopefully that your work keeps going as well as it is because it sounds really important. Thanks so much, Lauren. All right, thanks for joining us this morning, Hung. And that was Hung Do, who's the chairperson for Open Table in Melbourne. Um, and we're going to go straight to a song now. It is called Django Jane by Janelle Monet. This song goes out to Anya, who is the saltiest little fish I've ever met. <laughs> but this song is specifically for you. And just a little language warning with this one. There is definitely one use of the word mother effer. So... About four minutes if you've got kids in the car, yes. um, just so you know. Big up to some other efforts now. Oh, all right. And we'll be right back. <laughs> oh, no, work. Please work. Okay. Hello? I know. I love. I, I reckon our little tech glitches really add to the show. Like, I'll get rid of them during the, the podcast. The personality of the show, yes. I can't. I changed my phone. Do you have the song? Yeah, you do. Django Jane by Janelle Monet. But we will be back in 30 seconds. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am to 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe.
Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and Hello? people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. I swear we should have the kind of panel on Q&A as we did last night every Monday night because this Tuesday morning, Ayan, you are so high energy. I love it. I am. I could not sleep. I was so triggered. So triggered. I'm such a snowflake. No, No, you know. All right. Let's not trigger ourselves here. We'll be talking about Q and A some more later, so everybody can know what we're talking about. Um, Also, we should mention today. Now it's just Ayan and I. So if you hear an absence of other voices, Anya is in Sydney for work, and George has just left the building. So. Please don't judge us too harshly for our tech issues. That will inevitably be happening. Anyway, now we are joined live in the studio, our second live guest for today, by Charlotte Laurasia Raymond, who is a Melbourne poet who uses her poetry to explore identity. Um, we're very excited that you're here. Thank you for Thanks coming for having me today. So um, we'll jump straight in, if that's all right. So you're often identified in stuff that I've been reading about you in preparation for today as a queer woman of colour. So I'm interested in how much of your identity is integral to your creative work and sort of vice versa. I think one of the reasons why that often comes up in descriptors as me is because for me, my writing is essentially nothing I say will, or anything anyone says uh, exists in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. essentially, my experience as a person is going to influence my work. And I feel as a queer woman of colour, there's so much misre- uh, misrepresentation and not being represented. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to give... Um, at least one of those stories and recognising that, you know, my presenting as a queer woman of colour isn't going to be the same for everyone else, but giving that kind of snapshot of what that could be. Mm. So interesting that you say that. Sorry, I'm going to look a bit of script here, but that idea that, you know, there are multitudes within whiteness and within heterosexuality, but not within anything else. And so to have that, yeah, like you're saying, that multiple representation. Mm. Mm. Um, And so... I really loved, I read this and I was like, oh. so you've said that um, emotions aren't always safe, so let's put it on a stage and make it safer. Mm. And I found that really, it really hit home, um, but also I found it really interesting because a lot of your work discusses your mother. Um, 
which is a huge, <laughs> massive topic. Um, so I'm interested in why you've chosen to engage with such intensely personal and complex topics in your work um, that you are putting on that stage and how you found engaging with them. Like, has it been creatively or personally beneficial, difficult, sort of? Mm. I think one thing one poet had once said to me after I'd done a piece was, um, I can make things both so personable and so relatable at the same time. So we'll focus on that, you know, that theme of, say, my mother or my cultural experience. But then there's always that shared experience because there are themes in that identity. And I think often when I have an idea of writing something, I'm like, ah, oh, there's something that's been sitting in my head or a feeling that's been lingering and I kind of don't want to address it. Mm. So I make that so public that I don't make it so vulnerable. And then mm. it becomes easy to kind of conceptualize that feeling. That's so interesting, like you're almost stepping outside it for yourself um, or like intellectualizing it so that you, yeah, it's an interesting way to work through. I think it kind of is. I didn't realize I was doing at the beginning. I just realized, okay, how can I kind of almost make this a therapeutic process and Mm. write about things that I'm still trying to digest? So that is, you know, things like, you know, my experience of having um, two migrant parents, my experiences of that intersectionality and being queer and having all these facets kind of come together and not realising mm. all those connections. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes for really powerful work. From Thank a, you. From a totally outside perspective. Um, and so your first collection of works, titled The Melanin Monologues, a Charlotte's Web, cool title. Thank you. <laughs> was published earlier this year. Um, what sort of themes does it engage and how did you find the process of producing it? Um, I think with a, essentially a friend of mine who I did a co-book launch with, um, I had a bunch of work that I kind of felt really, the themes really linked well together. And for me, when I first started doing performance poetry, it came to a lot of those unspoken stories being what I wanted to get out there. So I wanted my first collection of works to really capture that. So being, you know, giving voice to my migrant mother mm-hmm. and her not speaking, you know, her mother tongue with her children and how that kind of relates to so many people. Um, my experiences of, you know, growing up, say even in school and how, you know, culture and food. Mm. And then even just small intricate details of, you know, microaggressions of, you know, everyday conversations and how my identity kind of exists as mm. it is. Yeah. There's so much in there. It's like it is broadly relatable and you can see how people will pick it up and, and you know, um, yeah, sorry, I'm just really stuck on this idea of, of intellectualizing something, but then also it being inherently relatable to your audience. And um, it's just very powerful the way that you managed to do that. I think it's, um, I'm looking forward to getting a copy of your book anyway. Thank you. <laughs> I think one of the things that for me, the reason why it is such an intellectual and personal process is personal existence is always going to be political. And when yeah. you have an identity that is so structurally oppressed, yeah. it's hard not to talk about those things. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so on Sunday, this Sunday, the 26th of August, from 6 till 9 p.m., you're going to be appearing in what's called the Sunday Salon at the Immigration Museum as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Can you tell us about it? So essentially, um, this event is being curated by the lovely Sukjit and also Noor. Um, so it's a bunch of um, poets sharing their stories and all coming from different um, cultural backgrounds. So I think it's really important to have those spaces where there's um, such a large collection of different voices and it not feeling like tokenism, it feeling like true representation of very different stories, but also very underrepresented stories. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what everyone else has got to bring to the stage. And I'm actually going to be trying some things a little bit differently this time as well. Cool. Um, and so where 
most importantly for right now, where can interested listeners follow you and your work? Um, so I do have a few things on the Melbourne Spoken Word page. Um, I've also got a book on the Melbourne Spoken Word website. And I'm thinking of starting to you know, get together and start doing an Instagram of all kind of my things. But that's still all pending at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but Melbourne Spoken Word is probably the best place to look for some up-and-coming poets in Melbourne. Awesome. Yeah, the Instagram thing takes ages. People yeah, don't realise how much work goes into that. Um, okay, and so for interested listeners, um, the Immigration Museum event, I will post where you can find tickets um, on our Facebook page. Actually, I think that I already have, but I'll repost. Um, and just a little rundown, the spoken word artists who will be performing include, obviously, Charlotte, um, Amal Ibrahim, Mina Shamali, Farah Sorry, do you know that person? Uh, yes, Amal <laughs> Ibrahim is, yeah, she's a friend and an amazing poet. And she's Somali, so shout out to Somalis for <laughs> doing their thing. Um, Farah Biani, Megan Megan, and Z Music, I think. Yep. yep. Beautiful. So um, amazing lineup, and it's going to be a fantastic evening. So we look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for having me, and thanks. thanks. Hope to see you there. <laughs> and I think we're going to a song now. I Love our 3CR Radical Radio T-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. How cute were those two songs? Well, MIA, Bad Girls and Big Runga, Sway. Sway. Yes. Oh my God. Took us back, hey. Took me back. For a second, I thought you were going to follow up with like A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlson No, I wanted to. I was, I was telling you, because it's part of like a 90s playlist. And then song after Big Runga was Sixpence. Oh, um, my God. Kiss Me. What does that make me think of? Uh, Dawson's Creek. Dawson's oh Creek and She's All God. That. Yes. Oh, pretty friends, Junior. <gasps> okay, no, serious, serious, okay, serious. Let's, let's get back. Uh, okay. So now we're going straight into community announcements. Um, the first event that we want to talk about is the Defend and Extend Public Housing. So they're a group that launched in December 2016, and they've been holding a series of rallies outside of the Victorian Parliament, um, so on the steps of Victorian Parliament. And the purpose of the rallies is to put pressure on the Labour government and the Liberal slash national opposition and to perhaps I guess bring bring awareness on um, the fact that there's lack of 
quality public housing and that we need to increase the number of public housing. So they've been doing that for a while. The latest one is on Wednesday, this Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. Um, just some context, ABC News reported in June that there are 80,000 people on public housing waiting lists and what little public land we have left is being snatched up by private developers in return for a mix of public and private apartments. Um, so if you believe that public housing should be affordable and of quality, lend your voice outside of Victorian Parliament on 21st of August, which is this Wednesday at 1.30pm. So, have you heard, Lauren, about IRL? Yeah, it's in my house. Oh, yes. Oh, amazing. I don't know who you are, but I love you, IRL InfoShop. Yes. <laughs> so, IRL is a community space and info shop in West Footscray. Um, so, the place is aesthetically gorgeous. Um, you really need to see this place. It's got, like, wall-to-wall bookshelves. There's flower pots. There's lots of light coming in through the window. Um, you can drop in for a read, get lost in your computer. Or it's also a good, like, catch-up place. Mm. So if you want to hang with a friend and you need, you know, sometimes you don't have money to be going to coffee shops, but, you know, you need the ambience of that community Safe space environment. as well where you yeah. can do yourself. So anyway, IRL are holding a practical prison letter writing workshop It's hosted by the Anarchist Black Cross Melbourne and it is on the 25th of August, which is this Saturday at 1pm. There's a suggested donation of $5 to $10 with all proceeds going to the Anarchist Black Cross. I guess because it's it's suggested, the donation is suggested, nobody will be turned away for lack of funds. Um, So, yeah, so it's a... The event is also braille friendly. There's also an Auslan interpreter. IR, IRL is also wheelchair accessible, but you might need to double check if the toilets are also um, accessible because there's a difference as, mm-hmm. as we've um, been finding out. Their event page also has information about the public transport that's near the venue. Um, so... Now to some little light-hearted stuff, some music. So if you love soulful music and spoken word, Sounds of Garden of Eden, Eden, sorry, Sounds of, Sounds of Garden of Eden. I'm, I feel like I'm, Sounds of Garden of Eden, Eden, not even, oh my god. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Eden. Um, they're hosting their second event showcasing upcoming and established artists from the African community. The event is taking place at Afro Hubs. And for those who don't know, Afro Hub is the go-to place for Ethiopian cuisine and events from the African diaspora. So Sounds of Garden of Eden, their event is on August the 25th at 8 p.m. and it is $10 at the door. We'll post all these event pages on our um, Facebook Tuesday profile. I just have one more that I want to add. Yes. But it's also, it's on at the same time as the IRL Info Shop Ooh, event. competition. But I know that a lot of listeners will also want to go to this one. So, yes. um, and I'll be there recording. So you can look out for me if you want to come and come on Tuesday breakfast, yes. I guess. And will you be wearing your satiny? Is that satiny? No. 
It's lace. I'll probably lace, be wearing lace. my fleecy shirt. Um, but it's the counter protest to the March for Men. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago um, through much laughter, but it's not laughter worthy. It's quite serious. Um, it's so sorry. Let me get my bearings here. So the National Union of Students Women's Department and the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism are counter protesting the quote unquote March for Men which has been organised by two far-right Melbourne um, personalities, Sydney Watson and Avi Yemeni. Um, they've called the rally to remind men that it is okay to be masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, look, the link between hypermasculinity and um, far-right is well-documented. So if you are opposed to either or both of those things um, and... You don't want to see sexism and misogyny creeping further and further into public life in Australia. Um, meet everybody at 12.30 on Saturday, so four days from now, at Federation Square. And the march is expected to go for a couple of hours. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. And if you need someone to go with, you can hit up the 3CR Tuesday Brecky Facebook page because um, I want women and Mm. genderqueer people to feel safe going um, but we should have a big presence there so <coughs> yeah numbers yeah 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 yeah, yeah absolutely mm. um so do you want to sh- go straight to q and a yeah do you want to play a little And that song, if you're ever interested in downloading or listening to it, <laughs> it's called Nitty Gritty by Shirley Ellis. If you're that much of a breakfast on 3CR fan. You know, sometimes you want to be in your car and be like, ooh, nitty gritty. <laughs> so look, I never said I was a singer, yeah? No, so, it's beautiful. Mm. I'm I'm smiling at you. <laughs> so um, we're, we're smiling now, but last Oh, for those who were watching Q&A mm. norm- I used to watch Q&A when I was like a few years back and I stopped watching it because mm. I felt like it was one of those you know um, they sell themselves as being progressive and radical but they're really they're really yeah. not like sometimes they might have some guests who push the envelope mm. um, but the way Tony cuts them off or the way he derails or the way he um yeah just he i don't know sometimes i feel like he he can make he really like the questions that he asks as a friend of mine was tweeting last night i don't think he's equipped 
to to no. be able to um yeah he doesn't have the range to talk about certain topics like totally. race and um yeah ethnicity like I, I don't yeah politics even i'm just like mm. but anyways last night um the show had a, a panel of writers mm. so there was Maxine Beniba Clark. Oh, we love you. Oh, there was Michael Muhammad, um, who wrote Lebs. There was a guy named Trent. Trent Denver Diva. Oh God. Diva. I don't Donovan. Know. Oh my gosh! Hang on. Trent, and I don't even want to say his name because he really got on my nerves, so and he got on the nerves of a lot of people. Yeah. Um, mm. he wrote. I think. Boy Eats Universe or Boy... Something to do with Boy and Universe. I don't know what's in between. Um, I'm actually not sure. So we, there was Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmad. Um, and then... Oh, gosh. I feel trash, but I really didn't pay attention no, to the white panellists. John Marsden. So, I mean, oh. did you read John Marsden when you were growing up? Um, I, I read one book, but at that time I wasn't really... Yeah, that wasn't my thing. I was more <laughs> Aral Stein. And yeah, fair. Yeah, the Aral Stein sagas. Trent Dalton is Trent his Dal- name. Sorry, Dalton. Trent. Um, and Dalton. he wrote Boy Swallows Universe. Yes, see. Right. I said Boy Universe. Yeah, no, you one were there. Word missing in the And Sophie Laguna, who wrote The Choke. So The Choke. A pretty, like, who's who of Australian yeah. literary, like, contemporary literature. Yeah. <laughs> Notably no Tim Winton. <laughs> <laughs> So, so um, I started watching 15 Minutes Into It because my friend thought it was a good idea to be like, hey, check mm. out Q&A. Mm. Um, I think it's going to be pretty controversial. So I tuned in and I was not disappointed, my mm. God. There was one moment during the conversation when Tony sort of kind of posed a question to Michael it's on the recording that I wanted to play. Oh, and that's okay. why I've... Maybe let's play that and yes. then we can unpack it a little. So this is just... It'll go for like a minute and a half. But it's just a little snippet of... Um, no, you have to... Oh, I have it. Yeah. Okay. Of um, of Muhammad answering a question from the audience and then Tony posing a very strange question back to him that probably almost definitely wouldn't have happened if he were a white man. Yeah. Not a Muslim, so... Mm. Um, mm. Can't wait to listen to her once I find it. Um, um, so something that I I didn't watch it, but going through all of the clips this morning, I think your friend is right. It sort of didn't seem like um, the panel even was equipped to talk about issues of race, um, with the exception of Maxine and Muhammad. Um, there were some questions about cultural appropriation and Jermaine Greer and these idea of these ideas rather of um, you know dangerous or challenging ideas and whether having a rape apologist and transphobe at a writers' festival was acceptable. Um, and we had those same sort of you know if we can't even debate ideas, then what sort of society are we living mm. in? These same kind of tropes just being wheeled out, and it was sort of. Um, I don't know how you could sit on a panel with Maxine Veneva Clark and still not get it. Yeah. You know, her, her she's so well-spoken and her ideas are so clearly constructed. Um, and, yeah, it's just, um, it was quite 
quite jarring to watch actually it really was and i guess the reason i'm quiet is i'm trying to find the audio because wow it actually did happen tony tony put a question to muhammad that you just wouldn't put to anybody and i feel like somebody else was saying on twitter that muhammad seemed like tony was going out of his way to sort of undermine muhammad and to um perhaps create this sort of image of you know the angry muslim dude and and it was so weird because there was so much hostility with the, the way he asked questions and the way he um would i guess ask him to like elaborate like it, it just seemed very attacky right um, so we found the video finally. Um, so let's just have a quick listen. Uh, something that I've been hearing entire life. I'm 32 years old and I've been in Australia for two years. And um, this kind of hysteria, the language, um, reinstate a white Australia policy, ban immigration from the Muslim world, ban people of colour. Um, has a cyclical model. We hear it every couple of months. And every time the Muslim community hears it, there's a script that we have to follow. We have to say, stop being uh, racist towards us. Stop stereotyping us. Stop essentializing us. Don't be afraid of us. We mean you no harm. How does that work out for the Muslim community when we follow that script? How did it work out for our sister, Yasmin Abdul-Majid? If anybody who knows her told you about her, they tell you she's the nicest person you've ever met. And she was still treated like a member of ISIS. You see, that's the point. That it makes no difference what kind of a Muslim you are. Good Muslim, bad Muslim, ignorant Muslim, educated Muslim, moderate Muslim, radical Muslim, still Muslim. And so at this point in time, I'm not interested anymore in reassuring bigots not to be afraid of me. My position is actually quite the opposite. My position now is this. If you're a racist, if you're a white supremacist, an imperialist, a colonialist, an orientalist, an Islamophobe and a xenophobe, you should be afraid of me. Because I stand in solidarity with the majority of the people on this planet who are saying no to you. And we are going to stop this bigotry and hatred that you're spreading. Let's, let's be clear. <laughs> Mohammed, in your case, you're talking about with your pen or your typewriter, correct? Um, because you're worried that I'm implicating some kind of violent action. No, I'm giving you the opportunity to say you aren't. <laughs> well, of course I'm not, but I've got to be dead honest. I always find it really cheap. When wow. That is so offensive. I could not. I had yeah. to rewatch that on the train this morning. Like, are you... You would not hmm. ask a white Christian man hmm. just to confirm yeah. you're not talking yeah. about inside... Oh, Tony Jones, who do you think you are? Like, Absolutely. Just, just for clarification, you don't mean to bomb us, do you? Just, I mean, that's that's mm. the, that's how it sounded like. I couldn't believe it. There was just so much um, antagonism, you know. Is, is that the word? No, absolutely. Like, and it was... It was just, do you know... Okay, so I'm reading that book, White Fragility, by Robin D'Angelo, okay. which is... Everybody get a copy. Yes. You can borrow mine. I don't care. I will, lend, I will library <laughs> this out. But it's talking about the defensiveness of white people mm. when white people as a collective mm. are being talked about. And somebody made the comment that um, like the term white people has not been used on Q&A so mm. much ever as it yes. was last Shout night. Shout out to you, Samira. 
Yes. Whoever you are, you're great on Twitter. Um, but that's, that is the perfect example of that defensiveness and that Mm. reactionary kind of, you know, that, I don't want to say like old white man, but like actually to spin it around and to imply that somebody is violent Mm. because they're talking about societal violence Mm. being foisted upon Mm. them. Like what? Yeah. It's the whole grouping of people who talk about anti-racism mm. as as violent as the issue. And that's why I guess people think it's okay to compare um, white supremacy to anti-racist groups. People are like, oh, but you're both selling hate or you're both promoting hate. And it's like, <laughs> mm. no, no. Check their records, boo. Yeah. We've got receipts on white supremacy, right? It, it's just just the, compar- the, the comparison between the two groups mm. is just so misleading and and um I was so glad I was so glad that Muhammad the thing with Muhammad is he was he was the way he talked is the way we talk, the way um people on social media talk, mm. right? You don't hear this kind of conversation on Q and A. Usually Q and A people are just very they tiptoe around the issue. It's very centrist because it's all politicians. Absolutely. But yeah. he was he was using words like white supremacy. Mm, he was mm. talking about the patriarchy and, and coming from a Muslim man as well. Like yeah. at one point he he actually said something about the West have having done more um caused more harm yeah. than any other region of the world, right? They're and, more violent than yeah. Yeah. And everybody in the Q and A audience went quiet. And that and that made me think like what kind of what kind of audience is Q and A? Is it people who are who are sort of like, oh, I don't see racism. We're getting better. Mm. So when Muhammad when Muhammad came out and was like, actually, it hasn't gotten better. Actually, let's not forget the way the the Muslim community have been mm. treated. The way you know all these newer communities are just being being just as attacked as yeah. as the other communities that came before them, and. I, th- I think people really think Australia is a better place. Like People really think that that Fraser Anning speech mm. was an anomaly, that that came out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah. No. The, 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 yeah, that was so weird. And people were also actually saying um, with that speech that everyone came out and was like, no, this is not Australia, this is not where we're about. But yet people are usually silent with what's happening mm. with asylum seekers. Like, I feel like... When, when someone comes out with something that's like black and white racism, people condone, uh, like mm. condemn it. But when it comes to like structural issues, yeah. like locking people up or denying them, um, I guess asylum, mm. people are sort of like, actually, no, we've got to follow the law, or no, you know, there's protocols, this, this yeah. and that. Or they're unwilling to see that racism can come in the forms of financial racism, mm. legal, judicial you know, institutional racism, like Mm. you're saying, all of the structures, education, housing, Mm. medical care, like all of these things where there are, there are figures that show that, you know, for example, black people get worse medical treatment in Mm. Australia or Muslim people are less likely to be hired for jobs and all of Mm. these things, but people don't, don't seem to consider that as part of the fabric of racism that is in this country. Mm until it's so blatant that they can't ignore it. And it is like people probably don't think that racism is the reason why people are locked up on Nauru and Manus. Mm. 
because it's not usually called racism, but what the hell else is it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, it just... I don't know. That's why I stopped watching Q and A. It just mm. seems so disingenuous, and and the way they the way they they sell that show. That's what I hate about yeah. it, you know. And and no one is ever as this, I guess, blatant as Muhammad was. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, I forgot the sister's name. I'm Maxine. A blank. Maxine. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was good. Every time they said why. I, and, and the <laughs> camera panned to the audience. There was this discomfort because white people are white people think that nobody sees them and, and nobody's looking at them, right? Sometimes I'm like, I know more about you than you would know about me because I have to watch you to survive. Me watching you is for survival purposes. I need to know how do I, you know, act yeah. in order to get the job because I know you're not seeing me as a human being. You're seeing me as these things that you've been conditioned to see me as. So, um, yeah, so I guess it's weird. It, it was good to see these kind of conversations happening. Yeah. Um, and Q&A. It would be so nice. I mean, this is a pipe dream. Obviously, Q&A is not going to change now. Mm. But it would be so nice to have that sort of platform for thinkers in Australia. Like Q&A used to be before it just became about, you know, four politicians and one token actor or something yeah. every week. Because that kind of conversation last night was a real, actual conversation. People were speaking from personal experience and about what they see in their communities and that sort of thing. And it oh. wasn't just like spin doctored and lines <laughs> and like, oh, party policy. Yeah. Um, it felt much more productive, Very. I guess. Very. And I yeah. guess that's why it was so stressful because, yeah. oh my God, Trent. Oh, I cannot get over Trent. Trent at one point was... He was doing that thing that white dudes do where they're sort of like, yo, I'm with you, bro. I'm with you. So let me be able to tell your story, you know. You know, I like at one point he said that he, you know, imagine working so hard on a story, you know, and and like basically his thing was I can I would be able to tell your story if I do it sensitively and if I put the time and hours and try to, you know, it's like, we don't need your help, mm. you know. Like, if mm. you can't see our humanity, that's your fault. If people can't see uh, our humanity, that's their fault. Like, don't, we don't need you. We don't need you as, like, this go-to person. No. Not go-to, but, like, a middle middleman. No, and you definitely don't need the Trent Daltons of the world telling your stories. Right. I mean, everyone's capable. and, and so Buy I, books by black yeah. authors. Buy them. Anywho, um, <laughs> we always get like this. I know. But yeah, let's 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 come back. Okay. Welcome back to Tuesday Brecky on 3CR Community Radio. That is all we have time for today. So thank you for joining us, and thank you to all of our wonderful guests. Next up is Accent of Women, produced and hosted by our very own Ayan Shulwa. Have a great week and we will see you 